Today's episode of the Heart of Giving podcast is part of a special series we call Made by the Bay. During these episodes, we get to feature amazing people in the Bay Area who are shaping the social landscape of that community. We're grateful for the generous support of Tipping Point Community for making these episodes possible. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. If you've been listening to my podcast recently, you know that I've been talking a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I've also spent some time talking about how important that it is we bridge communities. We have to find ways to talk to each other. We have to be able to communicate across differences. And if we can't do that, then I worry that efforts aimed at creating equity, diversity, inclusiveness in our society won't hit their mark. They won't get to where they could be. And as a result of that, our society as a whole will suffer. And so I'm wanting to have people on the show to talk more about bridging. And today, I am fortunate and really happy to have with me Manu Meal, who is the head of Bridge USA. And this is an organization that was started in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, that is working with on college campuses to teach and train and educate students in colleges and universities about how to bridge across differences, how to communicate with each other, and then maybe to take those skills and develop ways to be more effective when they go to work or when they're playing or when they're doing whatever it is they do in our world. We need to be able to communicate. We need to be able to talk. We need to be able to get past the bubbles that the algorithms put us in. And Manu is here to talk with us some about how we do that. Manu, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. All right. Thank you so much for having me. And this this sounds like a very timely conversation to have with the midterms coming up. Indeed. Couldn't be more timely because as we see from our political situation, things tend to be pretty polarized. Yet we know that at least I like to believe that most people want the same things. You know, we want to have uh, a decent lifestyle. 
we want to be able to raise children if we're fortunate enough to have them and see them grow up as successful people. We want to see to it that those of us who are less fortunate get opportunities. I think most people are generous that way. You know, we we don't want to be at each other's throats. You know, we want to be, we want to live in peace. I think most people do. And yet, somehow, Manu, these general things that we can all find agreement on are not things that we tend to focus on a lot. And I'm just curious, first of all, how you think about that and more specifically about how you help achieve this through your work. You know, Art, that question that you positioned there, which is that most people want the same things, and yet we're also living in one of the most divided times in the history of our democracy, is one of the weirdest, most fascinating, and also tragic realities of of the moment. And that's what I spent, frankly, 90 to 95% of my time thinking about. And I want to start not about myself, but actually about a story, because you kicked this off perfectly. The secret, I think, to our work and to our democracy is to realize what you're pointing out there, which is that most of us want the same thing. doesn't matter our skin color, doesn't matter our background, doesn't matter our politics. Most of us are pretty aligned. One of the things that I often do, like you are right now on the road, is, is do road trips. And my most recent road trip, just totally off the off the books, it's just me getting in a car talking to people, was from Austin, Texas to Boston. And so we went from Austin to Lake Charles, Louisiana. Then I went to New Orleans, then out to Meridian, Mississippi, Selma, Alabama, up through Georgia, through South Carolina, North Carolina, then D.C. and Boston. And stop at local bars, local inns, local restaurants. And you just ask people, like, you know, what, what do you care about? What drives you? And to your point, most people will say, I want to raise a family that's healthy. I want a system that works for me. I want more opportunity. Everyone says opportunity. And I think the reason why this problem exists is because a ton of people feel powerless and voiceless, and then a few people control the microphones in our politics. And so you have these really loud voices that are incentivizing playing on our fears and divisions, whether it is for profit, for votes, to stay in power to further their agendas. And I think what we have to do at this moment is we, the people, have to realize that it is up to us to step up, to engage, and to elevate the narrative that you're pointing out, which is that most of us have a lot of shared interests. So tell me how you got started with this work. Yeah, I know the program that you're leading now started in the Bay Area. Tell us about it. So I'm I'm 23 years old. I graduated college in 2020 from UC Berkeley. Let me say outright, I had no interest in politics or democracy or anything like this. I actually have less of an interest now. I started off as a pre-med student art in my freshman year of college. Everything changed. Uh, February of 2017, we had the speaker by the name of Milo Yiannopoulos, who is this right-wing provocateur come to campus. And I remember vividly walking past this cafe with the window broken in and inside there was a TV monitor that said CNN, UC Berkeley students protest speech. And right next to me, the television crew was filming that segment, which basically broke the fourth wall for me in our politics and in engagement. And the next day, I remember how viscerally angry, resentful, pessimistic a lot of people were on campus. And so What we decided was, let's just create a space for all of us to listen to each other. Let's just do talk therapy for campus. That was it. It was super simple. I still wanted to go be a pre-med student, do my business stuff, and get out. 
what we quickly realized was so many folks came to that discussion session are people were ready to listen. It's a shocker, but humans want to talk to other humans in, in constructive and safe environments. And so that turned into this thing called Bridge Berkeley. And we had amazing friends out in Notre Dame and Colorado Boulder that build Bridge ND and Bridge Colorado Boulder. And we quickly realized we have this movement of young people. And so in 2020, when we uh, graduated, we went full time with this work. The notion being that we're building the largest and fastest growing movement of young people that want to change how we talk politics, to elevate a mindset of open-mindedness, listening and curiosity over a mindset of fear, division, and hate. And we have currently 50 college campuses, 20 high school chapters. And most importantly, to your point earlier, people are ready for this. People are wanting this. We just have to figure out how we flip our incentive structure so that our voices are out there and elevated so that those conflict entrepreneurs can't prey on those divisions. Very interesting when you say conflict entrepreneurs, because we grew up knowing or believing anyway, that all news is good news (laughs) from the standpoint of those trying to make money. All publicity is good publicity. And yet publicity can be divisive and controversial in a way that's not good. And somehow we haven't quite learned how to how to work with that. I mean, our political system has changed a lot, not the system itself, but our political realities have changed a lot in the past 20 years. And we now are much more likely to see people uh, on polar ends and we've got to figure out ways to get them closer. As as we were leading into the show today, I mentioned that I did this podcast uh, last couple of weeks ago now, focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I gave my take on it. And I really believe that it's really difficult to have lasting progress in that area unless we can do bridging. And so I was at an event last night and people wanted to know, well, well, how do we do it? And I agree because frankly, I don't know if all of us are competent in having those kinds of conversations. Now, we don't quite know what to do. We don't know how to have tough conversations that actually yield something more than anger and hatred. And we've got to find ways to do that. But what are some ideas, if you would, that you would offer up to listeners who want to begin having difficult but important conversations about progress on any number of issues that we're facing right now. Yeah, let me let me take a quick step back for a second on your point about the anger, the hatred, the conflict entrepreneurs. I think I think we often forget that human nature is a is a two sided coin. Uh, on one side, you've got love, you've got empathy, you've got emotional connection, but on the other side, you have a lot of anger and you have a lot of fear and you've got a lot of hatred. And I think we have to figure out the way that the conflict entrepreneurs have figured out to manipulate one side of the coin. How do you get people motivated and ambitious and hopeful about love, about connection, about kindness? Because right now, we often forget that we also do like conflict as people. You know, we, it, it's, it's exciting when you see that Facebook headline come through and it's angering you and it's pissing you off and you're riled up and you're like, I got to share this and send this to all my friends. That is also human nature. And so 
I think a core part of the question of how you can have those conversations is one, realizing that a part of human nature is divisive. And so we have to figure out how to suppress that part while trying to elevate the mindset of empathy and listening. And I think it starts with two things. I think one is when I tell you, Art, hey, you should have a conversation with someone that's different than you. You're like, man, that sounds like a life-sucking experience. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not jumping out of the woodworks like being like, hey, I want to talk to people that I disagree with. Like no one on the street right now is like that. That's what I want to do with my time. Out of all the things that I could do with my time, that's it. So I think the first thing is we got to make the case to people. And, and I think importantly, and this is the second part, is people completely, I think, underestimate the power of conversation and completely overestimate the power of our perceptions of each other through social media. Like the amount of times I've, I've facilitated dialogue, or our student leaders have facilitated dialogue on campus, and you have two kids that enter our room and one of them is, let's say, actually take your homelessness uh, example that we led into the call with about uh, LaShawn Tate. We had students show up to this discussion that were very much on one side of the homelessness question. And then we had students that had been homeless in the past and students that were very much for another set of policies on that question. They came in and right off the bat, some of the students already started getting up and get started getting angry. They were like, this is not going to work out. I give up on this process. It's not even going to happen. They didn't even give it a chance, Art. And so we said was, hey, give us 30 minutes. Give us 30 minutes. And if you don't find any value, then you're free to leave. About 25 minutes into that conversation, the kids that first started protesting that discussion were jumping out of their seats wanting to talk. So I think it starts with, one, articulating that this work actually is valuable, and two, is that it's transformative, that it's not a life-sucking, but a life-fulfilling experience. Uh, that's really important, too. But what if I fundamentally don't believe yep. in where you're coming from? How do I engage a person like that? How do I even begin to have a conversation with someone who is just, they're so far on the other end of the spectrum that I just can't see myself connecting in any way with them? What do we do? How do we even get them to sit down long enough to listen? Ask them what they care about in life. Ask them what they care about in life. You know, the amount of times I, I, I go to college campuses and students will come in and we set up a circle and, and we start talking. I say, look, you might disagree on everything, but you're still part of the same species. We're all still humans. And what I'm willing to bet is your values and your end goals are probably similar. So what we'll do is we'll go around the circle and not even talk about politics, not talk about what you and I disagree about. There's like four issues in our politics that apparently define everything, right? When there's like 96 other issues that matter as well. And we'll go around and students, as you and I were talking about in the lead up of this, Students will say, family, I care about my sibling. And, 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 you know, the moment they'll say something about politics, no, no, no. What do you care about as a person? Like, what gets you up in the morning? And they'll say, I want to I make money so that my, my family can succeed or that I have opportunity. Like, well, that sets the table. And I think when you go into a conversation with someone that's different than you and immediately start on the three, four, five, six issues that you guys definitely disagree on, there is not a chance that that conversation progresses. But remember that we're still human. And, and humanity over thousands of years has trends that we all tend to follow. Uh, that upward progress, that thing that MLK talked about, that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. We all are aspiring towards that, maybe in different ways. The last thing I'll just say is we have these norms of discussions in our chapters. So we have four norms. Those four norms are listen to listen, not to respond. You've got two ears, one mouth. Focus on the argument, not the person. So if, if I say something really stupid that you hate, 
uh, focus on that argument, not necessarily a judgment on who I am as a person. Three is that we represent ourselves, not these big groups. I'm Indian American. That doesn't mean that if we're having discussion on immigration that I represent all Indian Americans everywhere. And the final thing is don't interrupt and let them finish the point. These basic norms, what we found over time is if you enter a conversation with agreed upon rules and principles and procedures, you can get somewhere positive. Terrific. Well, you know, you're 23 years old. You mentioned this and I'm looking at you and I can I can see you and I know that, yeah, he's probably about 23 years old. <laughs> but the way you think, your maturity, your orientation to life, it seems that you're a much more mature person than a 23-year-old might be. Depends on who uh, you ask. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. And maybe I'm underestimating 23-year-olds. That could be true as well. I'm willing to accept that. But there's something different, I feel, about you that you would, first of all, even be willing to take this on. Because I hear from so many young people that, well, my biggest issue is I need to find a job. Or my biggest issue is I need to get into college. Or my biggest issue is I just graduated from college and I got to pay off my student loans. I don't have time to do anything like this. Um, and you did it for a time, you know, as a volunteer before you even got involved in this. So is it truly fair to say it was this one moment at Berkeley that led you to this? Or is there something else in you that may have existed more latent in a more latent fashion that sort of came out at that Berkeley moment? I think about this a lot, actually. And, and you know, the person that really helped me think about this a lot was one of our um, close colleagues, Linda Laurel. And Linda and I, Linda had asked me a very similar question. And I know for a fact that I am not any more special or more skilled than most young people out there. I, I would not be here without some of my best friends. I mean, I know that. And I often think about my story because I am someone that deeply, deeply loves people. I, I really do enjoy like learning about people. I, I like listening, understanding. And I think it started for me because my family, my mom and dad immigrated to the USR in 98. I was born in December of 98. And then I spent the next five years living with my grandparents in a village west of New Delhi while my parents were in the US. Then I came back and I moved, I think our family moved every two years until they finally found their footing. And then I went to high school in Boston and then came to Berkeley. Throughout that process, it was a constant negotiation uh, of my identity. It was a constant understanding that you have to understand people if you want to be friends with them. It's that simple. To fit in requires us to sacrifice a little bit of our ego and give the other person space to exist. I also looked like a kid from the village <laughs> when I came here. I mean, I had matted hair. I had that accent. I didn't know English, uh, even though I was born in the U.S. So it's recognizing that, one, people, anxiety towards people that are different than you is, is a human thing. You know, we all got that. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. And the second thing is that we all are just trying to fit in. You know, we're all looking for community. And, and to your point about student debt and wanting a job, I want all those things, too. I'm not someone that is like morally gifted and superior and is, it doesn't have those desires and wants. But I think there are three things that drove me that I think any young person listening or anyone can relate to and, and get inspired by. The first is, is purpose. The why in what we're doing matters a lot. 
And I found that why very quickly, and I was grateful for it because of that event at Berkeley, which turned out to be the largest protest in Berkeley's history and my life experience. Uh, Second was my friendships. The people that build bridge, you're only seeing like 5% of bridge in me. Uh, There are amazing people leading this. And my job is to help them out and they help me out. And finally, it's just, you, you get a lot of value meeting people like you. I mean, I learned so much from this process and it positions me to just be a happy person. There's nothing more to it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen you in any of our interactions where you didn't have a smile or reason <laughs> to, to be positive. So I, I give you a lot of credit for that, too. So let me ask you, when we think about the bridging work, how bad is the problem right now? And what gives you hope? I think the problem is bad. And yet it's very simple. Here's what I mean by that. It's simple because of the fact that you led with on this podcast, that almost everybody you talk to is one, pissed off and sick and tired of how divisive our politics have gotten, and two, just wants their life to be better. So we're all starting out with a shared understanding. There isn't this insidious narrative that half the country is after one thing that is totally different than the other half. Yes, there are some extreme elements in both sides that are causing that, but really the middle 80 are on the same page. And the second thing that gives me hope in this moment and why I think the problem is actually relatively simple is because it's a problem of the loudest voices dominating and pushing out extremes while most of us disengage and become apathetic. So the biggest challenge for me is not actually trying to bridge divides. The biggest challenge for me is helping people not be apathetic. It's giving people a little bit of reason to hang on and stay. Because the moment we abandon, you know, that town square, the moment we say, all right, it's over, you've, you've sold the shop to the conflict entrepreneurs. You've sold the shop to those that are trying to weaponize hate and division. Last thing I'll say to this is there was this fascinating experiment in the 70s that Stanford did, on, on uh, Stanford psychology department did. And it relates to an experience I had in college after those protests. I was sitting in a class and it was about 15 people art. And this professor said something about a lecture. This one kid gets up and starts shouting at the professor and saying, like, this is terrible. This is evil. This other kid gets up and starts shouting at this kid. And the other 13 of us are just quiet. And we left that class thinking, man, like, all of us must be on one side or the other. We quickly found out that we were all equally disappointed and just wanted them to be able to resolve their disagreements in a constructive way. That's the story of our politics in a nutshell. So what the Stanford experiment did was it lined up a 1,000 people And it had this multiple choice question. And there were three choices to this one question. It was A, B, and C. And it was very obvious that the answer was C. In this thousand-person randomized trial, almost everybody picked C. Then what they did was they took 10 people, put them in a room. They told the first four to say that the answer is A, to see what number five would say. They go A, 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 A. And then everybody else says A. In the next trial, they rerun it and have person three say C which is the right answer. So it goes A, A, C, A, and then person five goes C. That's how simple this all is. It is a question of giving people the social permission to demand better. And it's about giving people the social permission to say, actually, when you and I sit down and say, man, this stuff is really divided, that most other people believe what you believe. So it's just about getting louder. And it's about elevating and building coalitions that are diverse and pluralistic. (laughs) When you put it that way, it does seem like it's pretty simple. So I think we need what you do 
on every college campus and your organization is growing pretty fast, but what would it take to get this on every college campus? And I'm going to go one step further. What would it take to get it in every high school? What would it take to make this part of every like college and high school curriculum? Maybe that's too much to ask for. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, how do we get these Bridge USA clubs every college campus? Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking that because that is that is our vision. It's to give every young person access to a Bridge USA chapter so that they have the opportunity to see and have these dialogues and conversations, see that most of them know that the answer is C. They just got to say it loudly. It's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. There's three things that I think our team needs right now. One is that we're a young team. Our entire team is under the age of 25. It's all those people that had originally built Bridge USA chapters and now are working full-time and have put their heart and sweat into this. It's about getting them the right mentorship, getting us the right leadership so that we can ensure that we can see around the corners of basic organizational challenges. The second thing I think is we need to get better at articulating and answering some of the biggest critiques against bridging. And that's something I want to go into later because there are real reasons that people have to argue against this work. And I think it's important to address those. And I think finally, when it comes to getting this on every campus, I think that young people have to believe that bridge building as an idea and as a practice is a theory of change. And here's what I mean by that. Everybody, right or left, is a little stirred about the status quo. And when I, when you come in and everyone in this family is angry, and then you're like, okay, we got to hold the family together. You're like, why do I have to hold the family together? Why should I do that? What we have to do is we have to articulate and demonstrate that this is a mechanism for helping to build a better future. People, people need to, to see this as a vehicle for realizing their ambitions, not as a hold up, let's talk. Let's sit down and let's be in a kumbaya circle. So those are, I think, the three things we need. And of course, there's you know financial and resource constraints. I think that the space and this work is very underfunded. One of my personal goals is to get in front of as many folks as possible, whether it's folks in foundations, in, uh, in the business world, in people that don't necessarily think about bridging, but invest in politics in other ways to see that if we don't invest in this right now, our democracy is the precipice of real civil unrest. Well, you wanted to talk about some of the critics of the work, so let's get into that. What are some of the real criticisms? I won't say real, but what are some of the criticisms that you hear? No, and I think some of them are real. You know, it wouldn't be very bridgy of me to be like, our stuff is all right. <laughs> I, I think well, I I, there you go. You, you could say it, but I can't. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a kernel of truth in every criticism, sir. I think, I think there are three big sort of general criticisms of this work. I think the first is grounded in politics. It's why should I talk to a specific party or ideology that seems to be very a-democratic? The second is very much based in identity and at the personal level. You know, why should I, let's say as a member of the LGBTQ community, sit down with someone that doesn't believe in the rights of the community? And, and oftentimes a third sector usually are is how does this change anything like why does me talking to someone lead to any progress on any of the issues that i care about and i'm would you i'm happy to go through each of those but i i spend a lot of my time thinking about those because i think that they're real and 
we need to have a good defense of this work. So you, you've given us the three critiques. The question is then, how do we respond to them? I think when it comes to people that say that their identity is in question, I think there's two things here. I think one is that if you can have a conversation that's actually moderated and safe and structured, it can be very productive. And oftentimes, if you start with the question of what do you care about in life, you can get a lot. Shared values lead to a lot of progress. And I think the second thing is actually goes back to your work on DEI art. I think this is where allies come in. You know, I'm not necessarily in the business of asking that African-American student in the inner city in Chicago that's been beaten down generation after generation poverty to necessarily sit down with someone that does not acknowledge any of that. But their white friends don't get a free card. They got to talk. Someone's got to talk. Someone's got to be in that conversation. So allies are very important when it comes to these types of dialogues that, yes, I'm not asking you, the member of the LGBTQ community, to go sit down with someone. But your allies should be willing to. But instead, right now, we're in a process where everyone just goes to Twitter and then nothing gets resolved. I think, I think when it comes to the question of, of the fact that how does this lead to change? How does dialogue lead to change? How does talking to people lead to change? I think what we often forget is that bridge building, this notion that we have to build coalitions, we have to listen to each other, we have to create and convince people of what we believe in a civil and constructive manner is the backbone of every successful social change movement in the 20th century, from Gandhi and the salt marches in 45 to MLK in the 60s and the civil rights movement to Mandela in South Africa. There is a reason why the dominant form of theories of change that elevated in the 20th century emphasized us actually creating coalitions and convincing people, not beating people. And I think the question and the challenge that, let's say I'm a Democrat, why should I go talk to a member of the GOP today that seems to clearly be focused from my perspective on, let's say, election denial and election integrity. Here's the problem. Approximately 30 to 40% may believe that. We don't have a country if a sizable contingent of that degree believes that. What we have to do is create every opportunity and space to create moments where we can actually get somewhere and find consensus. Because if we don't have that, if we lose the ability to talk to each other, our democracy falls apart. So powerful. So powerful. Well, Manu, I just want to just thank you for, for weighing in and for giving, giving us everything in you here um, at this really critical time in our democracy. I think we're at a point where there's reasons to be concerned about where we stand as a democracy and whether the democracy will even last. And if it will last, I think it'll be because we were able to realize much of what you're talking about, that we can control what happens next if we're willing to open up, listen, and find safe places to communicate that we're all basically here trying to accomplish the same things and that we're all basically human beings trying to do basic things. And if we can get there, then the democracy survives. If, if, we're, if we're just a little willing to put something else ahead of us, to put an ideal ahead of us, 
an ideal. Maybe that ideal is everyone deserves a shot. If we can just put an ideal ahead of our own personal needs for a little bit, maybe we have a chance to do great things in this country and around the world. And I think the work you're doing is going to hopefully lead to that happening for a whole new generation of people. And who knows, maybe some of the people who are going through Bridge USA can help some of the older folk like me appreciate the opportunities that are out there for all of us too, to, to come closer and to appreciate each other more. So I just want to thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. Let me just appreciate you for a quick second. Aside from the fact that your podcast is called The Heart of Giving, which is what we all need to be doing right now, you're extraordinarily deliberate. You're extraordinarily well thought out and very measured. And I think the leadership that you've brought, the spaces that I've been in of calm, of, of, of boldness, of clarity, I think is needed. And to anyone listening, one of the funny things I was talking about the other day, Art, was inspirations like caffeine it only lasts for like 20 minutes don't be inspired act you know we need people to step up you know i i'm just a random kid that got behind a, a great idea that a bunch of people supported with some amazing friends that's all it takes and so i'm grateful for you uh thank you for the work you're doing and thanks for having me great well you've been listening to manu meal he is the chief executive at an organization called bridge usa and I hope that all of you will take what Manu has said to heart. And for all of the campuses around the world that need a program like this, reach out to Manu in the Bay Area and let's get one going because we need it. If you want to find other episodes of the Heart of Giving podcast, you can do so. We're on all major podcast platforms, and I'm sure you'll find some that really move you to action. And if you want to support the podcast, we would be very gracious to accept the gift on give.org. You go to give.org and you can make a donation to the Heart of Giving podcast. We'll see you here back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.